0: This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott.
1: This is Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network. And here I'm speaking with uh, Eberhard Fetz and App. Um, spoke this morning in our in our summer school about what he called the self in the brain. So, but, what what did you really have in mind when when you described the self in the brain?
0: So, there's uh, it's common experience of everybody uh, knows that there's a, a self in their brain that is interacting with the world, and uh, I brought it up as a. Uh, a model for understanding how the brain interacts with external devices, how the brain would interact with brain-computer interfaces, and also how <coughs> the self would uh, uh, deal with uh, recurrent brain-computer interfaces—that is, bidirectional brain-computer interfaces. Right, because this is—if you want, it's also a
1: metaphor, right, of how right. how volitional control could be exerted over even single neurons mm-hmm. in some sense. Yes. Because usually we, we think about, okay, we are controlling the body, we control the world given our goals and our, mm-hmm. our wishes, our intentions. But what you have have specialized in uh, with, with also really very exciting results is in some sense how this mapping, if you want, between a brain and the volitional control of the brain itself and external devices can be almost arbitrarily mapped, right? That your, That's right. Your first experiments. We're in the 1960s mm-hmm. in this domain. That's correct. So where did this, what, what was the key observation that really pushed this
0: forward? So these experiments were done as a postdoctoral fellow. I came from MIT just having a degree in physics, which was totally useless for what I was going to do. But I needed to know about uh, neurophysiology and behavior, and I thought it would be fun to put these two together and uh, do an exper- experiments on... Training monkeys to volitionally control the neural activity in their brain, and it was a great deal of fun. And I wish I'd stuck with it, but Mm -hmm. uh, uh, because it turns out in retrospect that uh, what I had looked at as biofeedback for these operant conditioning studies, which is the deflection of a meter arm uh, controlled by brain activity, is sort of the paradigm that's uh, now being used in uh, brain-machine interfaces. And I wish I'd had the uh, connection between meter arm and uh, prosthetic arm. My mm-hmm. career would have been quite different. Right, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. It is a demonstration of your narrow vision that uh, this, this meter arm is just feedback, mm-hmm. not a prosthetic device.
1: Right, because the, in those experiments, so so I guess you were already exposed to notions like operant conditioning and so on at the time.
0: Not so much. I mean, I <clears throat> this work exposed me to that. Mm-hmm. I was working in a lab of Mitch Glickstein, uh And uh, he had some very bright uh, postdoctoral fellows who knew all about operant conditioning. And I also worked with uh, a practitioner of the art, Dom Finocchio, who was really an expert on this, and uh, taught me all the lingo and uh, techniques of it. So Mm -hmm. basically, it was something learned as we went along. Right. But learned in the context of operantly conditioning neural activity Mm -hmm. instead of uh, behavior. Okay, but, but
1: I think this, this, this very first experiment that you published in 69, in science, in some sense, set a tone for, for what followed. Mm-hmm. Be, because in some, what you tried to do there is say, okay, the monkey was watching a dial, but now it had to trade. The monkey was, was rewarded for moving that dial in a certain direction. But the response that was being conditioned here was really neural activity.
0: Exactly. So he was actually, the way I saw it, he was being rewarded for controlling the neural activity. And the dial was a help, you know, conditioned reinforcer, uh, if anything, uh, and uh, helped the monkey to zero in on what it was that was going to get rewarded. And uh, the monkey quickly learned, uh, I'm anthropomorphizing, but its behavior was as if he had learned that the rightward deflection of this meter arm was going to be associated with applesauce reward, and he would very quickly learn to generate whatever neural activity or behavior uh, would drive that meter arm to the right and Mm -hmm. get rewarded.
1: But now these neurons, prior to the experiment, were these neurons in any way
0: involved with similar kinds of, of movements in the world? Definitely. These were motor cortex neurons, so very... Large numbers of them were um, a large fraction of the ones that we worked with were actually neurons that were involved in uh, generating uh, movements and so in fact, one of the original rationales for these studies was to determine what the movements were that were associated with particular cells
1: right so then uh, but so in this 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 gave you I, I guess the initial idea that you actually could change this these response properties of neurons and map them differently to to the world. But then, so what was really the next step there? And when, when did this notion of volitional really, really come in in the development of this whole approach?
0: Well, uh, this concept of uh, volitional control of neurons is simply just a, a way of saying that the monkey was uh, generating these uh, responses as if uh, he were making a movement and... Uh, so what happened, ironically, is that uh, as we were doing this work, um, the question came up as to whether or not the cells were really causally involved in generating the movements and the muscle activity. And so I got distracted by um, a causal question, which unfortunately got me off the track of operant conditioning. And that uh, technique was to demonstrate causality by doing things like uh, spike triggered averaging of muscle activity, which is a way to determine that the cell actually had an output effect on muscles. And that was such a devilishly difficult uh, procedure that uh, that gobbled up my time for the rest, for the next decade or two. Uh-huh. And uh, looking back, what I should have done is stuck with the more fun things, which was to uh, see uh, how far we could. Uh, exploit this operant conditioning paradigm. Right. But then for me to understand the logic of that, why did you move to a paradigm
1: where you really started to map neural response to muscle activity? What what, what was the
0: concept there? Well, the concept was to really, uh, in this uh, time, uh, the uh, activity of neurons was being recorded in uh, monkeys uh, generating behavior and correlating the changes in the neural activity to the changes in behavior. But everybody was uh, frustrated about the lack of real evidence that the cells were causally related to the behavior. So this came out of um, uh, questions like, uh, how would we show that the cell actually has a uh, causal effect on the muscle activity? And this, I think, was uh, an issue that... uh, appeal to my physics background to get to the bottom of mechanisms and uh, pursue uh, answers to questions like that. And so that's what I did uh, for the next couple of decades. We Mm -hmm. did this uh, correlation uh, method of um, uh, confirming that uh, cells had uh, uh, a real output effect on the muscles. And I think that actually did uh, solve a lot of issues as to what the properties of these output cells was and how their properties differed from other motor cortex cells that didn't Mm -hmm. have this output on muscles. So I think it was, uh, I'm being a little facetious saying it was a waste of time, but uh, I think it was definitely a useful uh, uh, enterprise and Mm -hmm. agenda to do this.
1: but, But I do believe that, even though it might not be at the core of your current interest, I mean, this mapping to muscle activity, there are some interesting aspects to, to the learning dynamics you already, already observed then mm-hmm. that I think are also relevant for our current discussion about brain-computer interfaces. For instance, yeah. that the learning, uh, also what you talked about this morning, already these early studies, I felt there was something very strange going on. That So you, so you train this neuron to, let's say, control a certain muscle uh, based basal reward, or an aversive stimulus, depending on the conditions. But it's not necessarily these mappings are are static. It seems that these, they're very transient in nature, right? So you, you mm-hmm. induce a sort of response partly because there's reward, but as soon as, let's say, the animal is moved into its own cage and it's outside of the experimental context, the mapping very quickly disappears.
0: Well, I see it more like there is this mapping, that, or this relationship, let's say, between a motor cortex cell and a set of muscles that, It may be uh, linked to uh, functionally in the sense of co-varying with those muscles. When we reward the cell, uh, we're basically uh, looking at uh, not just the uh, activity of the cell, but also at the correlated muscle activity. And so that's a natural relationship that exists in the uh, cage as well as in the experimental booth. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're not actually... uh, rewarding a relationship there. We're basically rewarding one component of a circuit, which includes the cell and the muscles. So part of the issue is how um, necessary is that relationship. So one of the fun things we did was to operantly condition the dissociation of uh, uh, very consistent relationships. So so there was a cell, for example, that always fired with the biceps, but... um, Then when the monkey was rewarded for firing the cell without the muscle activity, he very quickly learned to dissociate them. Mm -hmm. So that was of interest and sort of flew in the face of the dogma that uh, motor cortex cells have a relatively stable and reliable uh, relationship to the muscles. Right.
1: So do you believe that there's a full dissociation there or are there some constraints acting upon that system?
0: Yeah, I think there's a full dissociation uh, in the sense that one turns off while the other stays active. Uh, but uh, there are various ways that uh, that can be achieved by just changing the balance of inputs to the two to the cell and to the muscle, uh, so that they can be independently controlled.
1: But do you believe I could, for instance, retrain my my uh, the homunculus of my motor cortex to be inverted?
0: Hmm, that's a big uh, challenge. Uh, if you're talking about the whole homunculus, yeah. we're just talking about a single cell. I know, I know, so but, but I let's just try say, to understand
1: the boundaries, right?
0: Yeah, right. So, for example, relating it to the homunculus, the question might be, can the cell in the hand area be uh, related uh, to a movement of the foot? Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, it's probably pretty... Straightforward to reward the animal and uh, su- succeed in getting him to co-activate the foot in the cell that was related to the hand. It doesn't change any um, functional uh, relationship in the sense of uh, circuitry. Uh, it just changes the pattern of activation, which is uh, quite different. I mean, that pattern of activation is sort of a transient thing that's modifiable by these operant techniques... But the underlying circuitry is a little bit more fixed and uh, uh, anatomical, as Uh it were. But the way these uh, units, uh, the cells and the muscles, uh, are activated uh, can be quite flexible. And that's actually essentially what this operant conditioning paradigm uh, demonstrated. Right.
1: So then, the, so in some way you're saying I could, you could multiplex it. You could say, look, there's sort of one layer, one frame of reference that is maybe a bit more hardwired, but then on top of that, you could wire in almost an arbitrary response set, and they can coexist.
0: Well, the term uh, "wired" for that second thing is a little too strong. I think I see "wired" as more uh, having to do with anatomical connections and activation as being the uh, the pattern in which uh, the activity is distributed through those hardwired circuits. And so the activity patterns can vary quite a bit depending on how the brain uh, propagates or generates this activity. And it can uh, activate the elements in a fixed circuit in a variable way. That's another way to put it.
1: But but still, to you're, you're also to do that. you superimposing that. I mean, that's superimposed right, exactly. on the structure. That's correct. But still, to superimpose it, you do have to change some of the wires
0: to, to implement that, that activity pattern. Well, I beg to differ. I don't know okay. that you actually are changing wires so much as working with the wired system in new ways. You basically are propagating activity and ignoring some of the wires that exist uh in this process, and activating or uh, propagating activities mm. through some other wires that exist, but the activity is sort of um, the waves on top of this relatively fixed structure mm-hmm.
1: okay. but then so, but you would agree that you're changing synapses to accomplish that
0: no'm sorry
1: but i think uh, how do you get selectivity then in that system?
0: By – that's a good question. Uh, You get selectivity by um, changing the uh, pattern of excitation and inhibition that exists in the circuitry and uh, activating cells in different ways. I mean, there's a very deep question you're asking is how the brain can use a fixed circuit, which I believe it has, Uh in variable ways. And so – no, but look,
1: let's take but, one but, example. Yeah. Right, so one of these early experiments you described, you you're mapping two neurons right. to a muscle, right, and 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 then you showed that that you could condition that neuron to go both up or down its response, yes, uh, dependent on how you were conditioning it. That's right. Right. Yeah. So so now you're mo- given the the, conti- the reward contingency, you are modulating the response of this neuron. It can go in any direction you want, up up or down.
0: What's the substrate of that if it's not wires and it's not synapses? It is uh, obviously the wires that connect to those cells. So we have these two cells that are neighboring cells that uh, have very similar normal uh, relationships to uh, joint. But when the monkey is rewarded for Activating them independently, uh, he figures a way to uh, independently control the synaptic input to those cells to make one's activity go up and the other's activity go down. So it's a flexible way of activating the circuitry, but um, it's not actually modifying the uh, physiological circuitry. The the connections are there. mm -hmm. So,
1: so uh, how I read what you're saying is when you say, "Look, there's like a fixed wired system," that's not really changing dramatically due to the conditioning. Correct. But but there's sort of a modulation of that circuit, exactly. Possibly expressed in, let's say, synaptic connectivity or whatever. Okay. Yeah. That that might lead to the specificity of these changes. It's something along these lines.
0: Mm, mm, Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there. Well, so
1: I'm trying to to get you to say what the real
0: substrate is of these changes, right? Yeah, well, I wish I could give you an answer uh, as to exactly how that happens, or even give you an analogy. I guess one thing that comes to mind is you've got uh, uh, railroad tracks that go all over the place. That's the structure. And you can have trains riding in different ways over those tracks. Mm -hmm. And... uh, One is uh, structure and the other is activity. Right. So here, in terms of activation of neurons, uh, it's based on uh, a circuit, but the way that circuit is activated uh, generates different patterns of uh, activity. And if your question is uh, uh, demand for an explanation of how that happens, um, I have to admit that I'm not uh, totally sure other than wave my hands and say, this is all... Uh, top down, as it were. In other words, uh, generated from within the brain, in ways that are analogous to uh, the way you can move different muscles volitionally independently. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much the same thing because cell activity and muscles are similar. So, so okay. Now that we have sort of an understanding
1: of the substrate that that's implementing these changes, even though it's not completely clear. <laughs> but right, okay. You you did equate that with a substrate that would support mental imagery. Yes, that's So so
0: what's the link there exactly? So the link is that the same cells that uh, generate uh, a movement um, are in many cases the same cells that are activated when you just imagine that movement. And uh, this uh, principle of uh, relationship between natural... um, Uh, activity in relation to visual stimulus, for example, and uh, imagining that visual stimulus pertains to other areas. So uh, in general, uh, imagery uses a lot of the same neural substrate, but it doesn't actually activate that substrate uh, enough to produce the movement. You you don't act out everything you think about. Uh, So there's a switch that... uh, stops this imagery from being expressed.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. But then, so, so if we... Now, so here, we, we see this flexibility of, brain, of the brain to sort of remodel itself and to, to change its mappings almost arbitrarily, but we looked only at output structures. So do you see the same kind of, of um, superposition of states also acting out between multiple modalities or motor systems and sensory systems? So are the mappings also arbitrary in in that respect?
0: If I understand you right, then the question is on the output side. uh, Actually, the motor cortex is sort of on the output side uh, with regard to controlling uh, muscles because it's... uh, at. uh, Minimal, it's one synapse away from the motor neurons, but even several synapses away. It's functionally tied very closely to uh, activation of motor neurons that contract muscles. And there the flexibility is quite, uh, quite clear when you probe, when you do experiments that probe that flexibility. For example, this operant conditioning paradigm is a, a way of probing how flexible the relationships actually are. Mm-hmm. Does that have anything to do with your question?
1: Yes, yeah, sure. So, But could I, could I overlay, let's say, sensory responses over my, this motor core? Could oh, I separately yes. condition these motor neurons to respond to sensory stimuli?
0: Well, first of all, the idea that you're uh, conditioning the neurons is a little bit misleading because you're conditioning the animal to activate the motor neuron in a certain way. So you have to see it as being part of a uh, distributed uh, uh, network of activity that is uh, generated by the subject, the the monkey or the human or whoever's in this experiment, and uh, not attribute this uh, um, behavior specifically to the cell in isolation. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's an important distinction to understand how it's all being generated and what it all means now there was something about uh, the superposition of sensory and motor Mm -hmm. that uh, you were getting at in terms of arbitrary mapping of sensory input to motor
1: output exactly
0: Um, because earlier
1: yeah well hmm, go ahead because earlier we just probed let's say the boundaries of remapping within a motor system yes Right, and there was like, well, there might be some constraints on the system but within those, you can sort of freely map things around. Mm-hmm. So, then the, the, the obvious next question is to say, like, okay, but what are then the, the boundaries with respect to some sort of sensory motor mapping? Okay, yeah. so uh,
0: that actually uh, is implicitly uh, addressed in these studies because uh, the motor cortex cells that were involved in these conditioning experiments also respond to peripheral input. So they have a sensory response. For example, these two cells we were talking about that got dissociated, they had a nice drive from knee extension, if I remember correctly. They were both driven by knee extension. So that's a sensory input. And then the operant conditioning uh, got the monkey to individually activate the cells without the need moving at all. So in that sense that answers your question that yes uh, the mapping between the peripheral input to these cells and the motor output was dissociated by this uh, this paradigm of uh, conditioning mm-hmm. and it was dissociated by virtue of the fact that we were requiring the monkey to demonstrate that he has a central volitional input that activates a cell that's independent from the peripheral input Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I guess uh, you'd have to say that any cell that has multiple inputs that can be independently controlled uh, are demonstrating this uh, capacity or can dis- demonstrate the capacity for dissociation of the maps. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. But Tony?
2: Yeah, I, I, uh, talking about extending it, in your talk you mentioned that this is volitional control. Yes. Um, and uh, but what that made me think was, well, the uh, animal, or if it was in a person, uh, has to actively think and concentrate on making this movement, and then they can make the movement. And I'm wondering to what extent you think uh, that will be available then for automation so that you know, rather than having to concentrate on moving your arm in the trajectory, once you've learned that, will it be accessible as an automatic movement in the same way that... Other kind of movements are ones that are made naturally.
0: Oh, yes, I think so. I think the natural movements are a good model of what happens in this context as well. Right. And I'm not even certain that uh, volitional control uh, requires an amount of conscious guidance. I mean, I think it could be um,
2: analogous to reaching for something without thinking too much about it. So and, and if you take, for example, sort of a, a rhythmic pattern generation, so, for instance, walking. So imagine you wanted to use your system to uh, help somebody, a spinal patient, who were unable to use their legs. I mean, could you imagine that they would be able to, with the, through their motor cortex, drive the spinal pattern generators for walking and modulate them in a way that people could walk relatively naturally? Or would you imagine it would require a lot of concentration through your motor cortex to control your legs in stepping patterns. I mean how do you see that If you that had developing? a spinal
0: cord injury, you mean or if you
2: If you had a spinal cord injury and imagining that we could somehow wire the motor cortex directly into circuits that control Spinal pattern right. generators for for leg locomotion. But Tony, I think we yeah. we we might we're get there. We, we will yeah. we
1: will get there because what I would like Eph uh, to do first <laughs> is to explain to us more in detail how right. he has been okay. wiring yeah, yeah. into muscles and spinal cord, and then we can address. That question a bit more. For at, well, at we the can end give that.
2: him some time to come up with an answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> I'm going to need time to think okay. of
1: the answer to that one. Uh, because indeed, I, know I want to make this transition now to the biofeedback. Yes. Probably uh, because this has dominated, certainly the last years of of, of your work. Um, so so why did you end up or how did you stumble into this whole biofeedback notion? What what, what was the transition there? Why did you go for for that topic?
0: Well, like I was saying, uh, I was a postdoc looking for a way to learn about recording neural activity in awake monkeys and operant conditioning, and uh, Ed Everts had already um, demonstrated the paradigm of training a monkey to make a movement and recording motor cortex cells in relation to the movement. So I thought I would turn that on its head and see whether we can train the monkey to. Rec- Activate motor cortex cells and see what sort of movements he made. Mm-hmm. It was just a fun thing to do as a postdoc,
1: right? But I think the first studies came out in the early sixties, right? In yes.
0: that domain. Yeah, you're talking about Everts, for Moore. instance. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. right.
1: So, um, but now I think you, you sort of revolutionized a lot of that work, um, also by by using this technology that you call NeuroChip.
0: Right, this is a very recent uh, development, right, exactly. this neurochip. Right, yeah. Uh, and the question is?
1: Well, what's a neurochip?
0: Why but, was so that such an important step in, in all this work? Good question. I don't know. I have to think about whether I can give you a rational sequence of where that came from. Um, uh, I think it came out of the... The blue, because uh, the Neurochip was a device that um, had been developed in Tom Daniels' lab. uh, And uh, Jadit Mavuri, a graduate student in electrical engineering, was doing the uh, programming and application of this to uh, investigating the control system of a moth, Manduka. And I ran into Tom Daniels, and he told me about this. He's very excited, and he got me excited. And I said, well... Good God, if the moth can carry this thing, a monkey could do that even easier. Mm-hmm. And we can add a lot of other stuff to it. And so uh, I started to think about this uh, uh, in the monkey. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, this brilliant postdoctoral fellow, uh, Andy Jackson and Jai Deep, got together. This is a good example of the productive consequences of putting together two people that... Uh, have complementary talents, and they uh, worked away at making this uh, actually work. So mm-hmm. it's a serendipitous uh, encounter yeah. with Tom Daniel, I guess. But <laughs>
1: but <laughs> NeuroChip essentially allows you to have an autonomous, integrated package sitting on the skull of the monkey, correct? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. To to sort of train, condition, remap, and or exchange signals with with that system. Right. 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 So. Was that, was that the key the key step there, that it would be completely wireless, autonomous, locally programmed? And-
0: yeah, that was all part of the, what the Neurochip could do. It could operate by itself with battery power. <clears throat> and then the other key development is uh, uh, development of wire electrodes. Uh, again, Andy Jackson gets credit uh, for these wires that were embedded in the motor cortex and... Uh, could record neural activity even during uh, free behavior, the monkey jumping around and so forth. This was not something that could have been anticipated, the stability of these recordings, uh, because uh, normally when you record neurons in the brain, uh, it's a very fragile business uh, subject to artifacts, movement artifacts and stuff like that. So these embedded wires actually are... Uh, pretty solidly uh, embedded, and uh, allow the recordings to continue during days of free behavior. Mm-hmm. So that was another uh, pretty crucial element to make this neurochip paradigm work over days of behavior. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Andy thought that uh, it would be great. Andy Jackson thought it would be great to uh, uh, test this uh, Hebbian plasticity by doing spike-triggered
2: stimulation, and uh, it worked.
1: Mm-hmm. Right.
2: So the uh, they're extracellular recordings, presumably. Yes, they are. That they're making, mm-hmm. and uh, so presumably you're detecting several neurons there, and uh, you're sorting them using spike sorting, or how? No, how this is
0: actually typically the wire is uh, next to one neuron, so you don't have to uh, do the separation. But the right. neurochip is programmable, so that it can detect the waveform of a single cell, even in the presence of other cells. That's right.
2: Mm-hmm. And how many wires can you put in at a time? Uh,
0: well, uh, I think the record now is uh, Tim Lucas put in about 30 of these wires. It's a real tour de force, but it uh, it actually worked.
1: And it has one neuron per wire?
0: When you're lucky, yeah. Okay. Uh, that's right. Uh, or if you're really lucky, then you can get more than one. But mm-hmm. the neurochip chip uh, that we've been working with up till now typically has three, up to three channels of input. But... Um, the next one that's coming down the pipeline is going to be really cool. Lots of channels. And
1: right. And then outputs. Well, our outputs? Uh, where do the outputs end up?
0: So the outputs are typically electrical stimuli, like pulses that are triggered from the action potentials of the cell, and those are delivered uh, in the motor cortex or spinal cord or uh, uh, eventually in muscles when we have a large enough... Uh, potent enough stimulator to mm-hmm. activate the muscles. So
1: the first experiments, or one of the first, was was creating what you called artificial connections between yes. cortex and spinal cord, if I'm correct, or was it muscle? O-
0: or even between cortex and cortex. So the very okay. first experiments of Annie Jackson and Jadeep Mavuri was uh, c- connecting motor cortex sites. So these were two s- separate sites in the precentral gyrus that uh, could be functionally connected by this artificial loop. <clears throat> more recently we've been uh, working with uh, artificial connections from motor cortex cells to spinal cord and uh, that works very nicely too it's a little more distance and the spinal cord is a little more challenging in the sense of uh, stable implantation of the electrodes but it can be made to work
1: but then one of the first experiments i think was one of these artificial connections from motor cortex Two uh, two muscles in the wrist, if I'm correct. Yes. Through which the monkey, so the monkey had to control these muscles, and then using
0: that response, it could control a cursor on a computer screen. Well, this is the way it worked. The uh, uh, so this wasn't actually done with a neurochip; it was actually done with rack-mounted instrumentation. Okay. Uh, but it, later on, uh, the same thing was done with the neurochip. But basically, uh, the idea was to take the activity of a cell recorded motor cortex and uh, deliver stimuli into the muscle, or more accurately, the nerves that go to the muscle. And so the cell was directly controlling the stimulation of muscles which produced twitches that uh, allowed the monkey to uh, succeed in playing his video game, which Mm -hmm. was to get forces into, cursors that represent forces into targets.
1: Okay, so it had to generate these forces with these muscles, or how exactly? Yes, that's right. The the
0: muscles generated the forces. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this is work of Chet Moritz and uh, the promoter that uh, showed that uh, if a monkey is uh, trained to uh, get a cursor into targets with normal muscle activity, and then you block the nerves to the muscles, paralyze them, then you can bridge this lost connection with uh, direct uh, connection from the cell to electrical stimulation of the muscles, and the monkey will quickly learn mm-hmm. to drive the cell to stimulate the muscle to get the cursor into the target. Right. Okay? Yeah. Right. You
2: were saying in your talk that actually directly stimulating the muscle creates this problem of recruiting the yes. large and small cells in the wrong order.
0: That's right. It's not yeah. a natural way to activate the muscle. So there's a natural recruitment order from what they're called small motor neurons which have low thresholds and low forces to large motor neurons that have more twitch tension but uh, adapt very quickly. And electrically stimulating this uh, produces uh, recruitment of the large before the small and more natural ways of activating the muscle recruits the small before the large and uh, the small uh, motor units have much longer; they can be activated much longer. So it's much nicer to do it the natural way. But that having been said, it's possible to work around that and mm-hmm. uh, and have the monkey generate these movements through right. activating things electrically.
1: But now, in some sense, in this in this experiment, you, you have introduced a bias by using muscles that. That in the life of the monkey are also used for for moving objects.
0: Yes, oh, definitely. Right.
1: So they're just temporarily disconnected through this nerve block. Exactly right. But so you're you're reactivating the subset of muscles that would have been used under normal conditions as well to move an object in the world. Definitely. Oh, absolutely. So, but now would you believe, would you imagine that you could also have acquired this mapping, could have twitched muscles just anywhere else uh, in the body? Um, controlling that same cursor.
0: Yes. Uh, So if you had the cursor controlled by the contraction of any other muscle, uh, the experiment would be essentially the same. So uh, one of the factors here is that the cells don't necessarily have to be related to the muscle that you're using. The monkey just simply needs to learn how to uh, activate that cell, which is similar to the operant conditioning paradigm, uh, and then once the monkey gets control of cell activity, then you link that cell activity to stimulation of any arbitrary muscle. Mm-hmm. And if the contraction of that muscle gets linked to the cursor, then you're home free. This is going to work, okay. I think.
1: But it would be, the acquisition would be equally fast, or it might take longer if it's, let's say, your... Uh, your calf or something like that. a muscle. Of
0: yeah, calf. I think it would be uh, just as fast because I'm thinking that the speed of acquisition is more a function of gaining control of the cell uh, than it is of the muscle, the nature of the muscle. So once you've picked a muscle and you've connected it to the cursor, uh, it doesn't matter where it is physically so much, uh, there might be some muscle properties that would...
1: Uh, And if it's smooth muscle, would it also
0: work? Uh, Yeah, well, uh, good question. I'm not sure. I'd have to make sure. I think so. I would say so, but I'm sort of guessing. It might be an interesting experiment to perform. Definitely.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah. I I guess one of the the issues there is how much the... uh, Going back to this point of it being volitional, how much is the monkey uh, aware that it's using a muscle or a, a set of neurons that command a particular muscle to control it so i'm imagining okay so if if this is my arm and i just have to imagine moving my arm and it operates through your system to control those muscles that's much more natural than i have to if i have to imagine moving my leg and as a result uh, my arm moves so i can see that there might be some mapping conflicts there which wouldn't exist if you can actually target the, the original set of, of neurons, motor neurons. What do you think yeah, I'm over-intellectualizing I'm thinking
0: this through, and I'm guessing that the, as far as the monkey is concerned, the idea is to get that cursor into the uh, target. And right. once he gets the cursor into the target with cell activity, the rest of the stuff is not uh, something that he's cognitively concerned about. I think he's just... Uh, experiencing a sort of nonlinear relationship between the cell activity and the cursor. And it's nonlinear because of the
2: of the recruitment of the muscle electrically. But which muscle it is, I don't think the monkey really I need. guess in the case of the cursor, that there isn't any anything that I could naturally do to move a cursor without, you know, moving a hand or something. But in the case mm-hmm. where you're controlling your arm, um, then it would make sense, presumably, to find the arm area and see if you could connect that to the arm muscles rather than use another area?
0: Well, you'd think so. I mean, that's the agenda of the decoding uh, group, and they they, uh, approach it from that point of view, is to uh, find cells that are naturally related to the limb that you want to uh, control and work with that. But uh, one of the nice things about this study is that it, demonstrated that's not necessary. You can actually work with any motor cortex cell that uh, the monkey can control and, and link it to the muscle. And uh, pretty much any motor cortex cell can be volitionally controlled. Mm. But now you also mentioned that the cell tuning itself does not predict the
1: ability to control the cursor.
0: Exactly. The same.
1: Right? So, but But in addition, you also said that you could triple the number of neurons that can be recruited to now control the yes. effector. So so what does it exactly mean?
0: So what that means is in that experiment, uh, about two-thirds of the cells that were used in the study uh, were not really showing directional tuning in relation to wrist movements, torques around the wrist. And all of those cells could be volitionally controlled and linked to a flexor, extensor, musculature, and the monkey would very quickly transition from control of the cell to stimulating those muscles and generating the, the cursor movement. And uh, in that sense, it liberates the paradigm from the necessity of finding cells related to the wrist. Uh, and uh, this two-thirds is a number that uh, pertains to... Th- the sample in this particular study, but uh, actually the number is much larger than two thirds. Of, I mean, when you start considering uh, cells in other areas, uh, leg area, non-motor cortex, premotor cortex, who knows? It's uh, uh, to be determined how many different cortical areas you can demonstrate this volitional control. Then you've increased the uh, uh, the space of uh, of, uh, let's say, source cells or the, the number of uh, cells that you could uh, recruit into this sort of a paradigm enormously over, uh, as opposed to if you had to find cells that were related to, uh, to the, uh, the limb. And this becomes a crucial issue in the case of stroke where the area that might control the hand muscle is lost and you don't have any cells that are related to the hand. But you'd have, but you'd have the possibility of going to cells in another area that uh, would normally have involved control of um, something else. But it's in an area that's still viable, and those cells can be then used to control stimulation of uh, of hand muscles. Right.
2: So in most of your experiments, as I understand it, then you're you're recording. Uh, uh, a, a train of spikes from uh, a motor neuron and motor cortex, and you're relaying that exact train to the target uh, with some latency. Is that right? Or?
0: Well, it's, first of all, I think the, the motor neurons, strictly speaking, are the cells in the spinal cord that connect directly to the muscle. Sorry, I, I mean so the so motor cortical. cortex cells uh, are cells that um, may or may not project to the spinal yeah. cord, Sorry. but you can take their activity and... Uh, <clears throat> Use it to uh, control the stimulation of uh, of the muscle. I think that's so. They're the the cortical
2: work. projection neurons, but but what what I found surprising mm-hmm. was that uh, uh, you, you you get a hit with just about every neuron that you find, uh, um, and presumably in some of these areas of cortex there are inter neurons that you could you be hitting or or do you know? Oh, yeah. Do you know if you're always targeting projection neurons?
0: No, no, uh, we don't know, and it doesn't matter, I don't think. Um, I'm pretty sure on the basis of how many cells in the motor cortex have been successfully controlled, uh, I would say that some of them are projection, some of them are probably not projection. Um, There's a bias toward getting cells with very large action potentials that are reliably isolated over long periods of time, so that would mean we're biasing toward layer 5 pyramidal neurons, but pyramidal now meaning the morphology of the cell is called pyramidal. But that doesn't mean they go into the pyramidal tract of the spinal cord, it just means that that's the shape. And uh, so they generate these nice big action potentials that are pretty stable. But where they project, um, we don't know, and frankly... Don't worry too much about because the key is to use their activity and use the ability of the animal to control that activity in a useful way
2: but it does seem surprising I mean if you think about cortical circuits you don't think about all the neurons being the same there and you think about interneurons having some modulatory role related to projection neurons and therefore possibly producing very different kinds of signals and being used to very different kinds of inputs so, whereas I can understand maybe a projection neuron, which is targeting a motor neuron, you could you could take the output of that and direct it down to the the downstream muscle, and that makes some sense. But if it's an interneuron, you're having to really the brain is having to really reprogram that interneuron to do something it's never done before.
0: Well, I think you're over uh, projecting function into cell types. Right. Uh, yeah. First of all, uh, your idea of how the Interneuron would modulate this activity, also uh, requires some degree of flexibility of the way they're recruited. Uh, So even interneurons could be uh, as easily volitionally controllable, I would think. Uh, There's another issue which has to do with the morphology of most of these interneurons are uh, sort of spherically... uh, as spherical dendrites and closed fields, and so they're less likely to be actually recorded by these tungsten electrodes. Um, but there's another
1: aspect, of course, that we might not want to interpret circuit too literal in terms of a single cell. I mean, these neurons are embedded in quite a dense volume of cells. Mm-hmm. And maybe what you're training here is this: the response of this whole volume. And activity within the volume will be highly correlated, whether that's layer 5 pyramid or an interneuron or a layer 4 stellate cell. Exactly. They will be tightly coupled in their
0: responses. Is that how yeah, you think about it? I do, yes. Mm. I think that the, we're talking about a large distributed uh, group of interconnected neurons, uh, which of which we sample one, or exactly. maybe two, mm-hmm. but they're all going to be co-activated, uh, right. it more or less. Or do you have any
1: physiological evidence for that, or is there any? Well,
0: uh, when you do record neighboring cells, uh, originally, when we recorded more than one and conditioned one, often the neighboring cell was also modulated, but not always, mm-hmm. So it depends on where the other cells are physically located. Uh, even though they're synaptically interconnected, they don't necessarily have to be neighbors. And my view of it is that this is a, a fairly distributed population of mm-hmm.
1: cells. Are you intending to, to to measure this directly, or you think that's not so
0: much of a problem at this well, stage? Well, that would be great. Yeah, actually, uh, uh, Chet Moritz is doing a study in which he's got lot of electrodes in the uh, motor cortex, and he's conditioning one or two, or maybe even three in some cases. And the question is, what are the other cells doing? So we'll yeah. have an answer once all that right. uh, torrent of data gets analyzed. Exactly. So now, but
1: the next step here was that you sort of went straight. So you, you, you bypassed out a muscle, because then the next step became, look, oh, maybe we can just wire it straight into the spinal cord. Right, that, that became the next exercise. I mean, the last right. experiment we discussed was really like moving the cursor with muscle twitches, Right. but now the next step was spinal cord. Spinal so cord. Wh- why was that an important
0: target? So the spinal cord is important because uh, it recruits the motor units uh, more naturally, which as we just discussed. Mm-hmm. And it also, t- spinal stimuli tend to recruit uh, synergistic groups of muscles. Uh, together, so that's what you ultimately want. If you try to achieve that uh, by muscle stimulation, you'd have to implant a lot of muscles and learn how to co-activate them. Whereas in the spinal cord, you're at a place where you can uh, recruit them sort of naturally mm-hmm. as a as a group.
1: But that but that would suggest that that you would know how the spinal cord is organized and how activity in in spinal motor neurons maps to yes uh, coherent yes. motion pattern movement patterns is is that known do you, do uh, you no, know well it's, enough
0: it's an empirical issue so we have done the mapping of the spinal cord uh, that is to say drive an electrode systematically through the spinal cord and measure the output and uh, what the take-home message from those experiments is is that you can't really predict what the output is it's a It's an empirical issue, and the reason you can't predict is because what you're stimulating is lots of fibers, and fibers are intertangled in unpredictable ways as a function of location in the spinal cord. So uh, ultimately, um, if you want to uh, get a spinal site where you get contraction of a particular muscle, uh, you're going to have to hunt for it, and then when you find it, you're going to have to hang on to it so uh, it's not something that you can reliably predict uh, beforehand. Uh, so the mapping, another way to put it, is the mapping of the cord isn't as clean-cut uh, as uh, the mapping of output effects in motor cortex, uh-huh. for example.
1: Right. But then the, the the neural response that you mapped onto spinal cord was the response in the gamma range. That's about 40 hertz type. Oh, there's uh, one study you're right, talking exactly. about. Right, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so there, you were able to to have the monkey modulate forty hertz responses in its motor cortex. I, mm-hmm. I assume mm-hmm. uh, to and move a cursor along one dimension of, mm-hmm. of movement, right? Yeah. Um, but now, do you think you can move that much further? Could you go also again from to single cells, Definitely. driving spinal cord? Okay, Absolutely.
0: So That's we've, we've done that. We have right. the data. We just need to analyze it. Okay, so So there are no
1: limitations there in terms of the the spinal control you can get.
0: I think there probably are uh, limitations in the number of independent outputs you can expect to find and how practical it is to go searching for the ones you need. Mm -hmm. So there are going to be challenges to make this, for example, useful prosthetic. Agenda.
1: Right. That's, of course, the, the obvious target, <clears throat> right? we would mm-hmm. say, well, we can sort of, in case of spinal lesions, we can directly bypass the lesion, mm-hmm. go straight from M1 into spinal cord and and move right. the legs or something like this. Is yeah. that a feasible outlook?
0: Eventually, I think it will be there. Um, so there's another thing that we're working on that might relate to that. Uh, having to do with stimulating, not intraspinally, which is an evasive technology, and the spinal cord likes to uh, eventually reject these electrodes that are in there. So the uh, thing we're going to test next is whether we can get similar effects by stimulating the surface of the spinal cord instead of doing it intraspinally. Mm-hmm. So the question is whether we'll be able to find... Uh, enough differentiation of the output effects uh, that can be evoked from the surface of the spinal cord or whether we actually need to poke mm-hmm. these wires into the cord and uh, right. search out. Uh,
1: but would the monkey be able to also correct now this mapping? For Imagine yeah. we go from motor cortex into spinal cord. We want to have, let's say, a certain walking gait. Imagine that's our target. Mm-hmm. But initially we get some strange twitches because we're not placed correctly the spinal right. cord. Do you think there's an, a possibility that uh, it's it's the motor commands coming in from the motor cortex that induce that error and that can be remapped uh, yes. volitionally? This yes. Is this what you expect?
0: Yes. To some extent, that's true. That, uh, But <clears throat> the uh, big factor is whether your output effects from the spinal cord, which are sort of a given basis functions, as it were, uh, include the movements that you want to generate. If they don't include it, there's no way that cortical um, control is going to be able to generate something that the stimulation doesn't right. produce. Yeah. But if you have it in your repertoire, then the uh, my prediction is that the brain, given sufficient time to learn to optimize that stimulation, can recruit that those outputs to mm-hmm. functionally useful ends. So you have great confidence in the plastic capabilities I I do actually yeah that's right it's an article of faith we'll see I mean there may be other complications I don't Mm -hmm. know you know things like you don't want to stimulate in the spinal cord dorsal horn too much because that's pretty aversive Mm -hmm. and you need to be in the right place Uh, and so there's issues like that sure but you have
2: a you have a, a backup plan I guess which is to go directly to the target muscles um, well, if you yes, can't go through the that's spinal cord. Right. But as we said, yeah. the
0: target muscles directly have this recruitment uh, problem. Yeah, yeah. And the uh, number of muscles that you can activate directly, you know, each one requires its own set of electrodes. So that gets to be a lot of yeah. wires.
2: I guess if you can understand more about how the uh, spinal cord is, is doing the recruitment, and then you could modulate your cortical signal to be more like a spinal cord signal, is that?
0: Yeah, well... uh, Then you're
2: getting more towards the decoding, recoding guys, I guess.
0: I'm thinking more in terms of the uh, brain being able to uh, recruit the motor cortex cells that control the stimulation in a way that makes that output from that stimulation be not practical uh, for the movements that the mm-hmm. subject wants to attain. And so um, that whole thing involves a learning process that could take uh, days and could be supported by this sort of an implant. That's part of this idea, the uh, advantage of an implant, is that it provides the subject plenty of time to, to optimize this control. Mm-hmm. And so that's an important... Uh, but now, in
1: some sense, um, th- there must be a minimum command set that has to go down from motor cortex into spinal cord yes. to get coherent movement.
0: That's right. right. You need as many independent outputs as you want to independently control the mm-hmm. uh, stimulus outputs.
1: So but what, uh, in the healthy brain, what would that be? So how many... Let's say I want to induce a walking gait... So uh, how many signals do have to come out of my motor cortex to induce that or to control that?
0: Uh, Well, that's uh, a good question. So the answer to that question depends on how many components of the gate you want to control. Mm -hmm. So you can use computers to help along a little bit to generate patterns of activity and then... uh, in the extreme, you might imagine you just have one cell that turns it on and off. Um, on the other hand, on the other extreme, you want outputs that control every component of the gate. And that's a much more formidable mm-hmm. challenge and uh, probably unlikely to be go the ahead. way that we want to go. So I think you're going to wind up with some combination of pre-programmed patterns that are controlled mm-hmm. by a sub smaller set of cells. Right. So, getting back to your question, how many? Uh, I'm guessing it would be useful to have at least a half a dozen cells. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, tr- yeah, because it relates a little bit to this issue of bandwidth and, and capacity, right? Mm-hmm. And now, in some sense, we can get away with a very limited bandwidth because we only control very few degrees of freedom. We move cursors over one or two dimensions, and so on, right? Mm-hmm. So, so do you see this as as a as a, as a bottleneck? As as a, a real limitation for technology, or do you think it will just scale up to any
0: set of degrees of freedom? The independent control? Yeah, Uh, It's a good question. I don't know. Uh, I I don't think it's unlimited because there are ultimately relationships between these cells. They're not totally independent, so they're probably going to be... uh, You're going to run into the fact that uh, it's not quite so easy to do them all individually. That... Uh, is the cautious answer. Uh, my intuition is that, uh, again, given enough time, I bet you the brain is going to demonstrate that it can handle uh, mm-hmm. a goodly number of right. degrees of freedom. Mm-hmm. But you have to give it enough time. Right.
1: So then another important aspect you touched upon um, was learning. Mm-hmm. Right? So you really also have configured your system that on a very controlled condition, you, you can look at, at different learning paradigms, have different forms of Hebbian learning.
0: Mm-hmm. right? So what were the key things that you have learned? Well, <clears throat> uh, with regard to Hebbian learning, we've uh, uh, found that you can induce the uh, uh, synaptic plasticity uh, that uh, is mediated by Hebbian mechanisms. That is to say you can strengthen the... Uh, Uh, connections between neurons Um, and in this uh, motor cortex experiment where stimulation and recording were both done in motor cortex those changes lasted uh, a surprisingly long time uh, 10 days uh, in one case and, uh, and it never reverted but in other experiments it hasn't lasted that long so another lesson is you can make those changes but uh don't count on them staying around in the absence of continued uh, conditioning.
1: But now the first experiment in motor cortex, basically you used your neurochip to, to impose certain, certain correlation patterns exactly between neurons with the idea that, okay, what, what fires together, wires together. Right? So if you force them to be synchronized in their response, you assume this experiment they also would wire together. That's right. And then the idea would be the response properties would become more similar.
0: Well, uh, the connections are strengthened. We don't know really all that much about the response properties. Uh, All we know is that the connections that were mediating the output effects by stimulating those sites uh, had changed. And uh, what uh, uh, that meant for the way these cells were active is an interesting question for the future, but not one that we uh, could... uh, But
1: your your measure, your performance measure, was how the cell's response correlated with a movement pattern, a
0: movement of the monkey. So now the the measure in the motor cortex study was the uh, Um, movements that were generated by electrically stimulating the uh, sites in the cortex that were recorded from and that were stimulated, and then there was a control site. And so the measure was really... uh, a somewhat artificial measure of what you could evoke with a train of stimuli from these sites. But those outputs changed in a way uh, that uh, uh, is most easily understood as strengthening a connection between the recording site and the stimulation site. Mm-hmm. Uh, the outputs were consistently in a direction that uh, could be explained by strengthening those connections. Now, the question of what... Uh, that meant for the way cells in these two areas are correlated, whether that was changing or not is not something that we measured, although it would be great to be able to do that. Uh, but
1: I thought your data were pointing this because you stimulated the, the cell that you, or the site where you had been, been imposing a correlation with yes. the recording site. Then you looked at with what movement it correlated later on with individual stimulation, and yeah. you saw that, that it was sort of a similar movement Right, as in the recording side right. and dissimilar from the control right. side. So right? you just
0: have to remember that the movements we're talking about are movements that are evoked by electrical stimulation, not mm-hmm. movements that were generated sure. by the monkey. right, okay.
1: sure, absolutely. So um,
0: I think there's a lot to be pursued here in terms of what the um, change in these synaptic connections means for change in functional interactions between these sites. So mm-hmm. that would be... Uh, a great follow-up uh, right. experiment.
1: But then the, the other thing that you emphasized very strongly in, in these experiments on plasticity was that it's not just any form of Hebbian learning that is driven by correlation, but it really follows these ideas of spike-time dependent learning. Yes, where where you depress or potentiate the synapse given the latency between pre and post synaptic activity. Exactly. Right. So. Uh, That means at very short latencies you would be depressing and at longer latencies you would be potentiating and at some point you don't do
0: anything. So so, so, so
1: Hmm? what was the exact observation there? So the
0: ultimate uh, (coughs) uh, mechanism is that if you have a presynaptic input uh, that's activated relative to a postsynaptic cell activation, the strengthening of the connection is... uh, dependent on the time between the presynaptic and postsynaptic input. So if that presynaptic input comes within 50 milliseconds of the postsynaptic activation, you can strengthen the connection, and that's consistent with what we saw in the motor cortex study and the corticospinal study. Um, turns out that spike timing-dependent plasticity function, which uh, uh, I've just described in the sense of increasing the strength of connection, actually goes in the other direction uh, of uh, predicting a decrease in the strength of the connection if the postsynaptic cell uh, is activated prior to the presynaptic input. So that's the uh, Mm -hmm. non-causal way of activating these cells. In other words, uh, the postsynaptic cell uh, would probably be driven by the presynaptic input in the normal causal way. That would strengthen connections. But if you do it the other way around then uh, the bidirectional spike timing dependent plasticity function, if I can use that mouthful of words, um, is actually predicting a decrease. And this is the thing that we could demonstrate uh, in the corticospinal system uh, could be uh, achieved when the delay between the spike and the spinal stimulus was zero. When the Spinal stimulus was delivered as fast as possible after the cortical spike. It actually activated the postsynaptic cells in the spinal cord prior to the arrival of the corticospinal volley, and that uh, resulted in a decrease in the connection. Mm-hmm. But yeah. that's, that's a part of this curve that uh, is only possible to explore through this means uh, mm-hmm. by... Uh, in situations where you have a long conduction time from the recording to the stimulated right. site,
1: but now there's something interesting about this right because what you found this learning window you found is sort of shows the strongest potentiation about forty milliseconds and it showed a depression about ten millisecond latency so this is telling you something about the causal structure that these circuits try to maintain mm-hmm. right because they're saying look okay if presynaptic activity is um, closer to 10 milliseconds to my post activity, then I'm not going to learn this. Then there's something wrong in the causal structure I'm dealing with. So is there anything special about these latencies you find in that spinal circuit with respect to the behavior
0: that it controls? The leap from uh, this spike timing-dependent plasticity to behavior is, uh, in order of magnitude, uh difference in the number of cells that are involved in generating the behavior mm-hmm. is uh, in relation to the number of cells that are involved in uh, demonstrating this plasticity. So ultimately, one would expect a relationship to behavior, but uh, it uh, it doesn't uh, uh, appear that our Hebbian plasticity studies are uh, strong enough to, to mediate observable changes in the behavior. Mm-hmm. They're, they're really small things, but right. but they're nevertheless the mm-hmm. uh, cellular mechanisms that underlie more mm-hmm. uh, broad uh, changes in behavior. I think
1: right. But, but the point is, at least uh, the first thing that's interesting, of course, is that you can induce this kind of Hebbian type plasticity using spike time dependent learning in a spinal cord circuit that I find very yes. surprising, mm-hmm. right? Because it means you can also reshape, remodel mm-hmm. these spinal circuits dependent on the kinds of pre and post signals that mm-hmm. they on it, mm-hmm. which should also give us hope in terms of rewiring spinal circuits,
0: mm-hmm. interestingly mm-hmm. enough.
1: Mm-hmm. But then the other thing is, of course, that maybe these very short latencies you want to maintain because you go from, let's say, your motor cortex um towards the periphery, Mm -hmm. uh, projections from the spinal circuit into the skeletal muscle system and its feedback will occur in a certain time window, and these must be aligned correctly, right? Control signals from the cortex should precede any type of activity you receive from the periphery. So you can imagine that these these latencies that seem now critical in this learning window that Mm -hmm. you found map to the latencies you might find in this transduction of control signals to the skeletal muscle system that you in the end are controlling. That's Mm a little bit what I was was after.
2: Yeah, the the changes that you see, um, uh, are any of those long-lasting? I mean, can we think of it as remodeling the circuit or is it something that goes away? Well, that was one of
0: the interesting uh, observations in the study of the corticospinal plasticity is how long does it last? So uh, in some cases, it lasted for at least two days after the end of the conditioning and possibly even longer, we just didn't measure it. In other cases, in the majority probably, it uh, dropped uh, after the end of the conditioning in the next couple of days. And so uh, that raises the question of how one would make these changes more long-lasting. It's possible that you could use other interventions. Well, first of all, you could just do this conditioning much longer than we did. We just did it for a couple of days. This is uh, Yukio, we is actually Yukio Nishimura and Steve Promoter, And uh, they did it for a couple days. Um, and uh, if you did it much longer, uh, it's conceivable that this plasticity could lead to structural changes that would be more permanent. Number one, amount of conditioning. Number two, you could use neural modulators to uh, change uh, the strength. BDNF for example uh, could be something that could make these changes last longer and third you could do things like uh, polarization of uh, you know, DC polarization could also uh, make these things last longer
2: mm-hmm.
1: but now the, the, the next step in, in the process, the, the, the last experiment you were discussing where you really try to, to now modulate or change reward systems themselves in the brain Right, where you tried to train mm-hmm. uh, towards nucleus accumbens, for instance. Yes. So what was the experiment
0: there? So the experiment there was to uh, use the neurochip to record activity somewhere. Uh, in our case, it was started with muscles and then deliver stimuli that were driven by that activity in a rewarding site. So this is an intracranial site where electrical stimulation uh, is uh, behaviorally rewarding uh, in the sense that the monkey will make movements to generate uh, stimulation, and so uh, in this paradigm with the neurochip, the idea was to close that loop from uh, muscle activity to intracranial stimulation of the reinforcement site, nucleus accumbens, and the monkey very quickly learned to do what uh, contract that muscle. Mm-hmm. And amazingly, he did it for quite a long period of alternating on and off periods. Would it not rest if you would
1: leave it? Would it do it forever? It, Is it well? The uh, famous rat experiments. It, we
0: took it out to twenty hours, and the monkey was still doing pretty well at the end of twenty hours. Although I think the data shows that uh, control dropped somewhere in between, probably mm-hmm. at night.
1: But did you also observe that the monkey did not eat or drink? It was just stim- self
0: stimulating? No, I wouldn't say that. I think it's not as um, uh, potent as in the rat. Mm-hmm. I think those are fairly dramatic uh, uh, demonstrations in the rat that that's all they'll do until they die.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But monkeys uh, are. It's not that uh, compelling uh, a stimulation. You can drop. It. I wish it were more compelling because mm-hmm. we're not trying to. Obviously, do this with uh, neural activity, neural patterns, right. and it can it can work. But uh, the results have been not quite as robust mm-hmm. yet. But
1: now you mentioned that you actually started to do these experiments because you wanted to get a handle on temporal coding, <laughs> which I found a rather surprising <laughs> step. Oh yeah, but well, very very interesting. Right. So, so, so that's a speculation that okay. if
0: this could all work, this is way out here now. Uh, So if this could all work, uh, this is a paradigm that could be used to test the idea of temporal coding. So what we mean by that is, first of all, temporal coding is uh, uh, the assumption that information is coded in a temporal sequence of spikes as opposed to rate coding, which says that information is coded in the average firing rate of cells. So um, if you... uh, we know that uh, rate coding works in the sensory and the motor system uh, and probably in a lot of the association areas. Uh, the question of whether uh, temporal coding is actually being exploited by the brain is an interesting question because if it were true, it would uh, increase enormously the bandwidth, as it were, for neural computation. but would mean that uh, you could use this... N- Additional dimension of time of spikes in the ultimate case uh, for information coding. Mm-hmm. So that's a great idea. It's very enticing. It's in, as I said, in dire need of experimental support. Um, and the idea, the fantasy here, is that uh, if we implemented this neurochip to reward patterns of activity, uh, temporal patterns, we could test whether those temporal patterns mm-hmm. were really part of evolutionally controllable. Uh, repertoire of Same behavior.
1: Thing. Right, exactly. Yeah. Now that would be very exciting. It would be great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I should live really that long, yeah. Um, so then, um, so where do you see the future of this going? I mean, it, it, this is all really, it's, it's amazing work. It really shows also the incredible plasticity of the brain. Um, and of course, it raises all sorts of questions about application and neuroprosthetics and all sorts of amazing things. Um, and also, something something we are confronted in the field, but rather, um, you know, amazing demonstrations of what might be possible. But, so where do you see this really go
0: in this field? Well, I think the exciting prospect, uh, looking uh, in the long run, you know, decades ahead, or do you want to talk just about the next couple of years? Both. Well, next couple of years, it'll be uh, modest increments. Uh, Mm -hmm. Well, we'll have many more channels in the next neurochip, so it'll be more than modest, I think. But in the long run, uh, the exciting thing for me is to imagine that uh, we would get to the point where uh, the brain could directly access the computational power of an implant, uh, let's say. And uh, uh, instead of uh, interacting with uh, our iPhone computers uh, through normal sensory channels, we would have that computer chip. Uh, available for direct interaction. So this is total science fiction today because uh, the major hurdle that I can see is uh, the problem of uh, tapping the right parts of the brain to connect to the computer directly uh, in both directions, probably more uh, seriously in the direction of uh, the stimulation being delivered back into the brain in a way that... uh, uh, the brain can decode and use because electrical stimulation is a very crude way of uh, activating a mess of cells with different functions Mm -hmm. and so uh, what we need is a much more uh, specific way of uh, delivering the feedback from the computer into the brain right now the best way to do it is through normal sensory channels through uh, tactile input or uh, maybe uh, stimulating the thought. But thousands. what
1: you envision there is also that you can create completely new capabilities to a brain.
0: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So the big th- fun thing to think about is what would you do uh, to uh, complement the computational power of the brain with the computational power of the computer chip? Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, of course, a science fiction... Uh, Movies and writers have anticipated all this, and so we have to look to what they can uh, imagine could happen. Um, I think the there are some serious problems to uh, direct transfer in bidirectional ways mm-hmm. of information. I think right now, the most efficient way to do it is through normal sensory and motor channels. But in the future, if we want to fantasize about where things could go, uh, it would be interesting to see how you could uh, uh, implant a chip that uh, the brain could access the computational power of directly. So right now, uh, even the Google Glass is a a, a device that makes this interaction, uh, makes the computer small enough and the interaction un. uh, easy enough that, uh, that it could operate, but it's still operating through normal channels. Mm-hmm. Right. So the question is, and it's a serious question as to whether this is actually going to be possible. The question is whether you can bypass the normal channels and get uh, useful functional interactions uh, by directly stimulating uh, and directly recording from the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm guessing that's a pretty much open question, and... Uh, if I were to bet real money on it, I would say it's 50-50, uh, maybe even. Mm-hmm. Maybe my imagination isn't uh, robust enough to imagine this actually working in a practical way. Right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so th- th- that's a kind of cognitive prosthesis, so a sort of chip that yes. helps you think better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And in terms of a sort of a physical prosthetic like a hand or an arm, uh, how's, how, how's the work you're going to do? going to impact in that, perhaps more near-term?
0: Well, there are other people that are doing uh, more practical work on uh, the more standard brain-machine interface, that is to say, an output to to a robotic arm. Uh, But they're also now working toward a bi-directional device where it's not just output, but also there's some feedback from the, uh, let's call it, let's say it's a prosthetic arm. And so you want to know, uh, what the uh, joint positions are, uh, and what the forces, uh, contact forces are, and you want to feed that information back somehow. So that does create a recurrent loop through this uh, external machine, this this artificial okay. arm. Uh, and that's where I think we'll be seeing progress because a lot of people are hammering away at it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, right. Yeah.
1: So, now, so so we started out with, with your, if you want, metaphor of the self in the brain. Yes. And with that, you meant that, that there are systems in the brain that can sort of control other systems in the brain. Right, right. right.
0: So where is that self-system? Wonderful question. I wish I knew. It's somewhere behind my eyes. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh-huh. It's somewhere in there. It's distributed, but it's very robust. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a key element of the brain that um needs further investigation uh, mm-hmm. i think a lot but, of but
1: but you really the key thing is you really see some distinction here there's really a controller some central system that is again controlling then these parts of the brain you are measuring from yes distinct
0: systems that's right that's and it's and merged
1: way. anatomically really distinct
0: oh not necessarily i'm guessing that this controller is uh Uh, includes this peripheral um, Mm -hmm. component of output because it actually has to um, modify its control of that output if you have situations like I described where you Mm -hmm. change the relationship between the output that you get and the output that you want to generate. Uh, Then the volitional controller part of this... uh, uh, brain is is adapting to the new contingencies but that adaptation obviously requires uh, the peripheral elements as well as right. the central ones but the but you know in a sense functionally you can imagine that there's a separate question of why you want to get from a to b in, and why you want to adapt your ability to get from a to b but i'm thinking now of this uh, uh, Musa Valdi and mm-hmm. uh, Shadmir study where A and B were points on a plane and uh, getting from A to B required overcoming some uh, strange force field. Uh, you still have the, the volitional controller part intending to get from A to B and the mechanisms that adapt to this artificial force field that you have to uh, overcome to get there as smoothly as possible that's all uh, mm-hmm. conventionally considered part of the motor system, but I'm guessing that um, that it could also be usefully considered as part of the volitional controller. Mm-hmm. So it's a semantic quibble. Uh, right. Griddle. But
1: now, is there, is that self, is that self, is that self um, in the brain beyond the conditioning? Is there a core system that cannot, in itself, be conditioned following these methods you have been describing?
0: That's a good. That question. is immune
1: to this manipulation. I don't know. Okay. What do you think? Uh, I don't think so.
0: Right. It's really
1: part of. Mm-hmm. I think it's more integrated. I don't think there's a clear distinction between the self and then the rest of the brain. I think it's much more, yeah, integrated, more integrated. Yeah. Integrated. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so then to to finish up, I have, I have two questions. So look, we were talking earlier, right? So your first experiments in the in the sixties. As a, as a physicist, so yeah, you're in this field for really a long time. You have accomplished an amazing amount of work, gained a lot of insight okay. in the brain. But then, given all this experience, what is Epps law that we should adhere to studying the
0: brain? Um, don't get caught up in conceptual preconceptions pre-con- about <clears throat> what part of the brain does what. Uh, I've... Uh, developed a more empirical uh, approach to uh, investigating the brain. This would be my advice Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. people getting into the field that are... uh, So uh, you can uh, have preconceived uh, ideas about this part of the brain does this and that part does that and design hypothesis-driven experiments based on that. But usually uh, that... uh, often winds up being problematic and unsuccessful and boring in some cases. And so I think my take-home lesson of my life is that uh, you have to just go in there and do it. So, for example, um, this uh, question of uh, what happens if you connect motor cortex to spinal cord stimulation. When I that was first proposed, the NIH study section was appalled that uh, this was way too complicated to Uh, uh, be uh, worth funding because we don't know what the outcome is and uh, where's the hypothesis, fishing expedition blah blah, all those things well, geez, I mean that's how you make uh, progress is to actually do some new stuff Mm -hmm. and not be constrained by all your preconceptions Mm -hmm. as to how it would work so I basically had to reformulate the motivation for that experiment to say we want to know what the... uh, uh, behavioral adaptation is to having this artificial connection in parallel with the biological connection, and we don't know what the outcome is. But the fact that the monkey controls both the artificial and the biological connections means yeah. that it's a meaningful question to see mm-hmm. how he integrates the two. Right. And a study section like that better. <laughs> so this <laughs> is all... Good. Yeah.
1: But anyway, don't localize. That's <laughs> yeah. the key thing. Right? And <laughs> right. the last question, so five years from now, we're going to come visit, visit you there in Washington, okay. and we're going to say, look at... You gave us this prediction in t- 2013, and uh, today we're going to come check whether uh, it was true or false. So what's this one prediction you would like to commit
0: yourself to today? That we still have a lot of interesting questions to investigate. <laughs> <laughs> That's too easy. <laughs> I know. I should, well, <laughs> All right, Ab, thank you okay. very much for
1: this conversation. You bet. Thank,
0: thank you. Thank you. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biometics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biometics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.